Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, this is uh, Tim and May Reed. Buenas. We're just finishing up our honeymoon. We've just spent two weeks in Costa Rica. Um, it's been wonderful. We've been in La Fortuna. We were in the cloud forest around Providencia de Dota. And now we've finished up on the Osa Peninsula in one of the most biologically diverse places left on the earth. We've literally seen more wildlife in the last few days than we've seen in our lives up to this point. Highly recommend it. Um, we love Tangentially Speaking, we love what you're doing, and we love the community of Tangentialists that have uh, been built up around it. So, peace. Adios. Chris, it's Jacob here in Fort Collins, Colorado. Just finished up a day of scooping up a few pounds of rabbit shit and piss. My uh, my boss sells rabbits on Craigslist for weird reasons. Um, I go to Colorado State University and I'm um, studying conservation biology. And so I'm buckling down with school here, but I love you allowing the people have a voice for their stories. And I love hearing them and different perspectives and new insights and learning new things. And um, I love you, man keep doing you i know you don't know me but i love you goodbye hey chris coming to you from tbdc georgia where i just finished your roma episode and it made me feel alive and rejuvenated so thank you for that last week i was actually just in mesqueta which is the original capital of georgia its monastery dates back to the 11th century and it is said that the king loved this monastery so much that he had the builder's right hand cut off so that he could not replicate his work but the other side of the story goes that he was in fact in love with the woman who was in love with this builder. I suppose he had to eliminate his competition. Anyway, be well. Happy New Year. Take care of those hands. Thank you so much. I will take care of these hands. And they take care of me and they take care of each other. We have this beautiful three-way relationship. It, it works really well. Um Thank you for those intros. Uh, some of them are probably been in my on my hard drive for a year. Uh, I apologize for the tardiness, um, but I'm working through them. Thank you so much for sending them in. This episode I just recorded uh, an hour or so ago uh, with the beautiful Rick Beato, one of my favorite people on the planet. If you haven't. Uh, Come across Rick. Uh, I had him on the podcast once previously, uh, maybe a year ago. Not sure exactly when that was, but uh, he has a YouTube channel called What Makes This Song Great, which is awesome. It's fucking awesome. He unpacks music. Uh, he's a p producer and multi-instrumentalist. Um, he explains what goes into making a song. And often, as we talk about in the this episode, 
a lot of what goes into a song isn't necessarily something that the musicians are even aware that they're doing. Some of them are just natural geniuses and they're they're doing things that uh, maybe later they look back at it and say, oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, but Rick explains it. He's, uh, I've said before, he's like the Anthony Bourdain of music. He takes you there and shows you how things are made and why they're so fucking great. He's a natural teacher. And his love of music is obvious and uh, and uh, what's the word? Contagious, I guess. You know, he really shows you how to love music, which is such a valuable thing. Um, I'm not going to really rant and rave too much here. I have some stuff on my mind, but I'm going to save that for Aroma. Uh, I don't want to clutter up this conversation with Rick um, with, you know, all my own musings. So I will keep this short and sweet. I'll remind you, uh, if you're spending money on Amazon, uh, one way to support the podcast is to go to my website, thatchrisryan.com, click on the Amazon link, and uh, a percentage of whatever you spend, I think it's 3 to 5%, depending on what category um, it is. You know, books are different from face cream and lube and whatever else you're buying. Um, but anyway, a percentage of it will go to support the podcast and uh, your price won't go up. It just takes a cut from Amazon, which they can afford. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, I'd recorded, uh, well, let's see, what did I, I did a, I did a, um, a YouTube live like two weeks ago, I guess, with um, supporters of the podcast, both on Patreon and people who support through my website. Uh, that was fun. And then, uh, but it was weird because it was just me talking and I could see the comments coming in. In fact, that was inspired by Rick. He does them. And um, it's it, it it looked fun, so I decided to try it. And then someone on there said, hey, you know, there are only like 28 of us here. Why don't we do a Zoom call sometime? So I said, all right, let's do a Zoom call in a week. And so, again, I sent out the invitation to supporters on Patreon and on my webpage. And um, we had uh, – that was really interesting. We, we had, uh, I don't know, 20 to 30 people on there. Some people came and went. Um, that was a few days ago. And that was really fun. That was it was great to meet people and and uh, after I I signed off after an hour and a half or something, but uh, I hear that they continued talking and and it's cool. We had a, a guy in Australia. We had a couple people in Germany and uh, Peru. Uh, a few people in the states, of course. Um, yeah, people all over the world. It was it was awesome. So. Uh, if you are a supporter of the podcast, uh, keep your eye open for that. I'll, I'll do another one of those sometime soon uh, since I can't, you know, get together in bars and, and meet people in a, you know, a brew pub the way I did on the van trips previously. So it's kind of a COVID get together, I guess. All right. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast, however it comes. Uh, if you can't afford anything financially, you can leave a review on iTunes. That always helps when people see there are lots of reviews, especially potential guests. You know, when someone invites me on a podcast, one of the things I do is look on iTunes and see like, okay, how many 
it doesn't say how how big the audience is, but it does show how many reviews and you know how how many people took the time to do that, and that gives you a pretty good sense of uh, you know how serious the audience is. So I know people do that with me. So if you do leave uh, reviews, it it helps. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to play you out with one of my absolute favorite pieces of music. Uh, I wanted to, you know, it's important to play something that I really love uh, because of the guest who knows so much about music. Um, this is by a man named Jan Garberek, who is, um, I guess he plays a tenor saxophone, I think. is I might be getting that wrong, but it's not like the the big saxophone. It looks more like a clarinet. Uh, it's a more delicate, light kind of sound. And it's this song is based upon field recordings that were made in Congo by anthropologists, I believe. I haven't Googled this. I'm just talking out of my ass here, so I could be totally wrong. But this is my understanding. The song is called Pygmy Lullaby. And I know that the same, um, the same uh, melody is used in uh, songs by a band called Deep Forest. And they use the actual field recordings and then they mix in um, other instruments. Uh, I don't think there are any instruments in the original. I think it's just voice. And I've heard the original recordings. You can hear the fire cracking and, and just beautiful voices. Um, and so these field recordings were were brought back to Europe and musicians were inspired by them and and did their own sort of interpretations. And so you can hear this same melody in a song by Deep Forest called Pygmy Lullaby and this song uh, by Jan Garberek, who is a, a great jazz instrumentalist. I believe he played with um, Pat Metheny and, and other great jazz musicians. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with the great Rick Beato, and I hope you enjoy Pygmy Lullaby by Jan Gabarek. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again soon.
I feel the way I feel toward you the way I think a lot of people say they feel toward me, which is we've never actually sat in a room together, but I feel like I know you. So even saying catch up, like how do you catch up with someone? You <laughs> catch up to what, you know? Um, well, but we, it, do, we do know each other, but just we just never met in person. <laughs> exactly. Like a lot but of there's so like much of, of people you nowadays. Yeah, exactly. I guess so. Yeah, it's. It's interesting. Uh, I don't generally have this relationship in both directions. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I, but I spend so many hours listening to you online. I do feel like I know you. Um, first off, I just want to, you know, say uh, condolences um, over Aunt Penny and and the loss. That was a beautiful video, and in fact, that's what triggered me to reach out to you. Um, it was really beautiful the way you did that too. Like I knew where it was going, but you did it with a lot of subtlety and, and grace. So, um, thank you. It, Appreciate it's that, weird when, you know, when someone, when you lose someone like that, um, you never know whether to say, I'm sorry, or congratulations that you had someone like that in your life, you know, and you recognized her impact on your life. Well, she would probably say congratulations. She she was, uh, you know, it was our relationship was, um, you know, Aunt Penny didn't have any kids. Um, she got out of the convent when she was uh, twenty eight. She had she got she was a school teacher. I, I didn't mention when I went to first grade to her first grade class when I was in first grade, and she brought me in for the day to introduce me to her her kids. She was wearing the habit, you know, mm -hmm. she was a nun. And then she got out of the um, uh, she got out of the the uh, the convent, and then um, ended up getting married to my uncle Mort. And uh, then she got divorced after that. And she had such an interesting life. And she was always um, so positive. And uh, you know, it's my mom's younger youngest sister. 
because she didn't have kids, she took us on, my, my myself and my siblings, but really me and my younger brother mainly. Uh, but but me in particular, I'd hang out with her all the time and we just would listen to music together. She'd play the piano for me, just taught me so much stuff. I mean, right from I was a little kid, the first time I ever went on a plane was with her in 1967. We flew to, to her sister, my Aunt Virginia, Virginia's house in, in uh, Michigan, Detroit. And I remember that we took off in this thunderstorm and my oldest sister was sitting next to me and freaking out. And my aunt Penny was just like, Pat, it's going to be okay to my sister. It's going to be okay. And I'm just like, Oh, this is amazing. This is so fun. The planes rocking all over. I'll never forget that. My sister's just white knuckling. Aunt Penny was just hey, Pat, everything's going to be fine. And so we, we always talked about that, that, uh, that was my first time on an airplane. So it was yeah. great. It's funny. I, I I remember early flights thinking like I wonder if I wonder if my life will ever get to a place where this becomes normalized. You know what I mean? Like this is so intense. Like what's life going to be like? Will I ever just be one of those guys who gets on an airplane and gets out a book and kind of ignores it? You know? Strange. And um, takeoff and landing are still exciting. You know, uh, right. but and and I've I've probably you know flown around you know traveled around the world five times at this point, so I've done a lot of flying. Um, but small planes, propeller planes, still are a blast. You know, my my uncle's a pilot, and we go up in his single okay. engine. Uh, he's got a float plane, so he can, like land in the Everglades and stuff. I mean, that's wow, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of planes. I think this goes with my, uh, you know, uh, just needing to be in control, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's me, but I just like, it's kind of like being a producer, you know, used to being behind the behind the board and somebody else is doing it. So you never really know what's going on. Mm. So you're a control freak? I wouldn't say I'm a control freak, but I don't like... Um, I like to be able to see where I'm going. Mm. And the fact that you can't see out of the front of the plane, you can kind of can only see from the side. You never know what's up what's up ahead of you. <laughs> Flock of geese. Uh yeah, I I think I have sort of the opposite effect. It not so much with planes maybe to some extent, but definitely in buses. There's something I find super relaxing about the moment the bus pulls out of the station. And it's like, okay, I got nothing to do. I've got no control until we get there, you know. Um, there's something about that that I, I think that absence of control, right? Like it's not up to me. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. There's a fatefulness, um, strangely. You know, your story about your Aunt Penny, you and I have so many things in common. Like we were born within a month or two of each other. Lots of time in upstate New York, lots of time in Ithaca. You know, we have probably – we probably have been in the same room. Uh, oh, yeah, in the, for sure. In the early 80s in Ithaca, we probably went to the same gigs. I that I knew Pat Metheny. I, 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 I didn't know him personally, but I knew of his music. So when you mentioned in that story that he was playing in at Cornell in 81 – I was going to college at Hobart. My best buddy was at Cornell. He's a, he was a musician. You know, I've talked about him. I, I'm surprised I didn't go to that gig. I, that's strange because I was a big Pat Metheny it was an, fan. It was an amazing – it was really an amazing gig. Um, uh, 
I I actually worked the gig, Chris, because I couldn't afford to go. And I, I had a T-shirt forever, um, that a Pat Metheny Group T-shirt that I got from all the people that worked as ushers, you know, got, got T-shirts and stuff. And mm. that's why I got to go backstage and meet him. But um, uh that was that was a really great time. He was only in his uh, in his twenties, I think twenty six at the time. So, uh, how old was he when he recorded that Joni Mitchell record? Uh, okay, so that was in nineteen. Uh, they recorded that in seventy nine. He was born in fifty four. So, uh, 25? so twenty five. Twenty five. That's incredible. Yeah, man. He did his first a- record in seventy five when he was twenty one with uh, Jocko and Bob Moses. And Jocko was in Weather Report at that point, I guess, or was that pre-Weather Report? This is this is pre-Weather Report. So Pat knew Jocko from the University of Miami. Pat uh, graduated from high school. He went. He grew up in Lee Summit, Missouri. He went to school at, at University of Miami first semester, but he was too good, and they had so many students that they made him the teacher. <laughs> so he went from he never even was a student. He just became the guitar teacher, right? <laughs> really? And That's and hilarious. um. And like some of the guys at the Dixie Dregs were there at the time. Um, yeah, I saw and them. Jocko playing was it. living. Yeah, D- Dixie Dregs, all amazing. Oh my god, Steve Moore. Actually, no, um, sorry, they, it was it was Geneva, and and they came back to my dorm room. Oh, at, at Hobart in Hobart. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't think they were going. They didn't want to play chess. I think they were hoping to meet some girls. Uh, it was just the, it was the, the dude, the main, the, the front man who had the long blonde hair. I don't remember. Steve yeah. Morse. Was that Steve Morse. Yeah. Yeah. Steve yeah. Morse. A phenomenal guitar player. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. But, yeah. uh, but th- that was a, that was a great, that was a great time back in upstate New York, back in the early, early eighties. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That was I mean, those are the days when if you got some really good weed, it was like a, it was a big deal. It was, I mean, I was into, I was into weed in those days. Uh, and, Chris, uh, was, uh, Geneva is on Seneca Lake, right? Is that the end of Seneca? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's up at the, yeah. the north end. Yeah. So people that don't know the Finger Lakes, they are the most beautiful. It's like Europe. It's so beautiful there. I love the Finger Lakes. Yeah, all those good. Towns, it's actually a you know, wine Ithaca. region. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, and there's a place, I don't know if you ever went up to Trumansburg, was sort of halfway of between Geneva. The, oh, uh, all the time. The Rangovian Embassy was there. <laughs> That's it. The Rangovian Rango, Embassy. Great club. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. And Bob Bob Moog invented the synthesizer there. Ah, uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, What's his? Jeez, never thought we'd be talking about Trumansburg trivia. But uh, <laughs> uh, who was the guy? That, um, Twilight Zone was recorded in Ithaca. Yeah, Rod Serling. Rod, right. Serling Rod Serling lived up there. Yeah, Went to Ithaca right. College. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Yes, that. he did. That's amazing. Yeah, you know, you, when you were talking about your aunt Penny, another thing I was what I was segueing into is uh, you know we have all these similarities in our lives. Another one of them is. Uh, I know you're Italian and you've got the Italian Catholic kind of thing. I'm Irish. I've got the Irish Catholic thing. Uh, my dad's cousin was a nun. She hung out at our house all the time. Um, but and I guess it's similar in your case. It, it was the the sort of hardcore Catholics in my family were really good people. It wasn't the yes. the, the judgmental condemning nasty kind of evil 
Catholicism that, you know, is depicted so much and, and is, is accurate in so many cases, um, but just like really sweet. In fact, I'm named after a priest. Um, my father went to a Catholic college, St. Vincent's College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And um, when he was in college there, he had a crisis of faith. And, you know, he his sort of intellect was was on fire. And the more he thought, the less he believed the stories and the snake and the talking, you know. And um, one night he went to one of his professors and he he said, listen, I, I don't know what to do. I, 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 I don't think I can continue calling myself a believing Christian. And his professor said, well, I haven't told anyone this yet, but I'm having the same thoughts. And yeah, uh, and uh, then he left uh, the church. His name was Father Chris, and that's why I'm named Chris. And um, he left and he got married and uh, was one of those. He and I'm still close with his wife. He died years ago, but um, they were like the kind of people who would go to Central America and help the campesinos, you know, they were like yeah. liberation theology kind of Christians. Um, really good people. Anyway, your Aunt Penny, your story about Aunt Penny reminded me of of them. Yeah, they, they were, you know, Aunt Penny uh, and, and her sister, my Aunt Marion, is still a nun. Aunt Marion's 83 and... Um, and they're just the most open-minded people. Oh, my God. My Aunt Marion was a music teacher. Um, she actually just stopped teaching this past year because of because of the uh, pandemic. But she was teaching up to last year um, at mm. at eighty at eighty three. So it's you know uh, an, another um, uh, sort of bookkeeping thing. Since I have you here, uh, I want to ask you to finish a story that you started on one of your YouTube lives, and then you got distracted and you didn't finish it. So the story is, <laughs> uh, you're talking about how your dad gave you the Joe Pass Virtuoso album and said, if you can ever play like this, you'll have done something with your life. You let the album sit unopened for months. Uh, you talk about how your dad was like a tough guy and you had kind of a, I don't know if it was a difficult relationship, but you didn't talk a lot. Um, but there's a lot of respect there. And you talked about, so you got distracted because you're talking about him coming home at five o'clock after you'd opened up the album and you'd listened to it and you were blown away. And then you're like, I'm going to practice. I'm going to play this for dad. And then your dad, you heard your dad coming up the driveway and then you start talking about how his truck had these wheels so that he could ride on the <laughs> on the rails because he worked for. I talked about the turtle. Yeah, and yeah, the turtle. Talk about the turtle. <laughs> right. He stopped. He was out with you one day, and you said, "Yeah, my dad and I didn't really talk much in the car, and we, you know, we were going down the rails, and there's this big turtle, and he stopped, and he got the turtle, and he put it over out of the way, and then he got back, and he didn't say anything, and you went off on that, and you totally." lost track of like what happened and i'm like what the hell happened when dad came home did you play well, for well, him yeah so so my my the point about the turtle is that my dad it wasn't that we didn't talk my dad just was very quiet except you know when you did something wrong he was just a man of very few words 
Even the turtle, he didn't say, oh my gosh, there's a turtle out there. He just stopped the thing on the tracks and I'm looking around, little kid, is there a train that's gonna come? And my dad goes up, it was a big turtle. He lifts the thing off and he carries it across, you know, far beyond the tracks, comes back, gets in and drives away. Doesn't say anything about it though. He just didn't. It wasn't like, you know, Rick, here's a life lesson for you. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but I never you. forgot it. 50 years later, right? you're still thinking about 50 it. 50 yeah. years later, I'm yeah. thinking about that. And he he probably wouldn't even have remembered it if I said, hey, remember that time you stopped for the turtle? I never brought it up or anything. I was just like, wow. Do you ever think That's about amazing. that with your kids? That that like you really have no control over what's going to stick in their memories? I do think about it, and I think, oh, that's something they're going to remember. But it's usually that I'm incredibly goofy, and I, I, <laughs> I uh, act. You know, we we play fight and do all this stuff, and it's we have we have a great time. And I definitely am the goofiest dad of any of the of any of my kids' dads. I think. Do you ever, so, do you ever um, worry that the nature of your of your life at this point? Um, and the fact that, you know, Dylan is sort of famous for those videos you did with him of perfect pitch and like this incredible innate talent that he has. Do you ever worry that that he's going to feel pressure from that or or that it could, you know what I mean, put him in a weird spot? Not really. I don't I don't uh, I, I never push music with them, with any of the kids. If they want to do music, they can do music. I have all the stuff here. They're not that interested in it. Um, mm. You know, whatever they whatever they want to do. My parents let me do whatever I wanted. I never had a bedtime, nothing. As tough as my parents were, they never made me do homework. They never made me practice an instrument. I played sports. I did whatever I wanted. I came in at one in the morning. I got bad grades all the time, and they never... My mom would hide my report card so my dad wouldn't yell at me. And it'd be, it would be April. But the school starts in September. April, my dad's like, hey, did you ever get a report card this year? And mom would look at me. And uh, They stopped so, doing yeah, this, it's, it's Yeah, they don't, they only do them once a year, dad. But I told this one story. I'm going to get back to the dad story. But my, I have six siblings, and we talk all the time. At least twice a week, we do a FaceTime with all of us, right? Wow. Really close Italian family. So my brother, Lou, two brothers older, he's a college professor. He teaches computer engineering. He's really smart. When I was taking algebra in ninth grade, I got a 38 the second marking period. I got a 42 the third marking period. And then I had to get I had to get a passing grade and then pass the regents, Um to pass the class because my parents were like, you're not going to summer school. Um, so you have to pass. But my dad said to my brother, now you teach that kid. Uh, the, the, uh, you know, so he made my brother Lou tutor me in math. And my brother Lou would always say, we always laugh about this. He's so stupid. that <laughs> All my siblings, we laugh about this so much that Lou's like, he's so stupid. And then we, and then we all say, man, I feel sorry for your students. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. he went on to become a college professor. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. but I did pass. I got a hundred on the final. So really, I got a 60, 65, Yeah, thirty-eight. And that to was forty-two last... to sixty-five to to hundred. Your your teacher wasn't suspicious yes. about that. No, it was. It was. Uh, you know, it was. Uh, I, I I once once he explained it to me, I uh, I could do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Well, and, and it oh, seems wait, like... Oh, wait, I have to finish my dad's story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, look, I almost didn't finish it there. See, I give you a hard time for losing it, and then I drag you away from it. <laughs> okay, so my dad comes home, and I realized how incredible this Joe Pass record was, and, how, you know, that this was this blew my mind. But I thought to myself, if I could play this for my dad, he'd be blown away. So there's a song, um, All the Things You Are, on there. So I sit down, probably at noon or so, and I'm working on it all day. By 5 o'clock, I've got this thing down, probably the first four minutes or so. So my dad comes in, and I got the stereo there. I said, he's like, what's going on? I said, but listen to that Joe Pass record you got me. Oh, yeah? I was like, check this out. I drop it on the thing, and I start playing along. My dad's like... And he, he was like, how'd you learn that, Rick? I said, I just listened to it and figured it out. And he goes, hmm. And I could tell that he was really impressed, but he would never say anything. But yet it wasn't that he was, you know, uh, there was nothing else. Just he wasn't. Um, he wasn't stingy. You could tell he was proud. He wasn't stingy. You could tell he was proud. He just. That just wasn't in his character to be, you know, oh, wow, that's really great. You know, I mean, for him to say, if you learn to play guitar like this, you've accomplished something with your life. That's that's my dad. That's like the one thing he ever said in life that was like that. You know, mm. he was a man of very few words, but those words counted. It's interesting. You mentioned that he wasn't a musician himself. He was a, a great listener, I think, was the phrase you used. Yeah. So for him to say yeah, he, to you, he was, yeah, that that music meant so much to him. He collected records starting in the '30s. He used to go. He'd go to New York City and see. He loved bebop. He loved loved the most complex music, and he wasn't a musician. That that always was. I never could figure that out. You know, my mom's side of the family, my aunt Penny, they were all musicians, so that was yeah. you know normal. But my dad liked the most complex music. Hmm. So what do you think that is? It, I mean, it's, I don't know. It, it, is that like loving Russian literature, but always in translation? You know what I mean? You you can't actually speak <laughs> the language? Yeah. Well, that's a great analogy. Yeah. Because I mean, that's, that's where I am, you know, and I, I, love music and and a lot of my closest friends are musicians and we'll get together and we'll just play a song over and over and talk about it and analyze it that's why your youtube channel what makes this song great resonated so much with me because i've spent so many hours sitting around in dorm rooms and apartments and you know listening or tents even listening to music with headphones on to get every detail and and then you know pick it apart and I'm doing that as a non-musician, so I, I recognize that there's, you know, when I listen to your videos, and half of what you say makes no sense to me, but it's still <laughs> the other half really enriches my experience. Um, but it is weird. It's I, I don't know if there are other things in life that are like that. I, I mean, I guess you can really appreciate food without being a chef. Yeah. But you don't yeah. know how it got to be so good. You just know, like, what's happening in your mouth. You don't know what happened in the kitchen, you know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. My my kids, uh, two, my two girls are in a Mandarin immersion school. 
And mm. so every other day they take Mandarin all day. And now, now that they're not in school, I see, I hear them in their classroom. I used to be on the school board at their school. Um, and I really believe in this dual language immersion. I think it's really great for their brains. So they, every other day is all in Mandarin, all in Chinese. And, you know, my daughter, Lennon, she's in sixth grade now and Lay- Layla's in second grade, but they, they do all their math they, they everything with Chinese characters. They read it. They and the teachers just speak Mandarin the whole day. And you know, my daughter that's in second grade, they don't even think about it anymore. And mm. but I listen to it, and it sounds interesting to me. But I don't know what it is. It's kind of like you know, maybe that's what jazz is to my dad. But it, no, but there was a, there was an emotional thing because my dad could could whistle along with it. Mm. He could even if the melodies were complex, he could whistle along with it. It'd be kind of like in, I, I I couldn't speak those the 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 Chinese phonemes are uh, are pretty tricky. Yeah, I went. You know, there's this expression that we live our parents' unlived lives. I wonder if your father's deep appreciation for music and appetite for what's being communicated in music and understanding of what was being communicated, but not understanding the medium by which it's communicated. I wonder if that's informed your experience in some way, because you, you know, if you took you and your father and sort of merged them, they would be this, you know, incredible being. Obviously you have the same appreciation that he had, but you add this, um, you know, sort of understanding of the language itself. Yeah, you know, my my mom, her side were the musicians. They were the artists. My dad's side were the, um, were the very analytical. My dad's brother was a dean of a, um, he was a dean of Alfred University. Uh, he was a, he was a mathematics professor. I mean, brilliant guy. The, the, so the Beato side is very analytical. And the, my mom, the Domino side, Aunt Penny, my grandfather, they were all very artistic. They're mm-hmm. all, all musicians. And, um, and it was really a great kind of put. I've, I'm kind of that. I have the analytical and artist side both. But I like to, just like I do it in my own brain, kind of connect those things. I like to be able to explain it to other people without taking the mist without stripping it of its mystery i i when i do what makes a song great i do it with reverence for the songs and how they're put mm. together i like to explain how they're put together but always with wonderment or with 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 the mystery and and not stripping that away from it if you know what i mean i do i know exactly what you mean i i and in fact sometimes i'm and maybe I'm just making excuses for myself here, but sometimes I'm kind of glad I don't understand music because I feel like it allows me to focus so much on the mystery and not be distracted by the process. Um, I remember talking with my buddy Mike one time, you know, we used to sit in the car and play the eight track and, you know, listen to Rush 2112, you know, beginning to end. <laughs> and um, I remember saying at one point, like, there was there's something happening in a song, and I said, ah, oh, yeah, I just feel suddenly I feel nostalgia at that point in the song. And he said, yeah, well, that's a minor key, you know, that's what it does. And I was like, ah, you just kind of ruined it a little bit for me there, you know, <laughs> or, or at least you showed me that 
showed me that in your mind, you're thinking about how it's done and not getting tears in your eyes, you know, which is unfortunate, uh, I felt for him, although I, you know, give my left leg to play one of the 10 instruments he plays. Um, here's, here's a question I wanted to ask you, and it's totally, you know, uh, jumping, uh, away from this for a minute, and then we'll come back to the mystery of music. Uh, you've got three kids, uh, Dylan, Lennon, and, uh, I, I just, Layla, Layla, of course, L Layla is Layla. Yeah. We can talk about that song. Um, uh, I had my first psychic experience when that song was playing on the radio, the first of a dozen or so. Um, I broke into tears. I was eight years old and I was with my mother's cousin and we, we had, we were parking, we were running errands somewhere. And I re I just remember opening the door and the sun was like glancing off the sidewalk and that song was playing on the radio and it went into the piano part, that second part, and I broke into tears. And Fred was his name, my mother's cousin. He said, what's happening? What's wrong with you? And I said, grandma died. He said, what? He said, yeah, grandma. I said, grandma died. He said, oh, no, no, grandma's fine. Don't worry about it. It turned out later she had died at that moment. Wow. Yeah. Um, so that song is like super, it's my whole life. It's It's been a very special song. But my question to you was, you have these beautiful kids with these beautiful, very musical names. If you were to have a fourth kid, have you thought of the name? <laughs> if you had a son, would he be Hendrix? <laughs> you know, we thought about different names. It's interesting. Well, Dylan, we already had, but when late before we knew if Layla was a boy or a girl, we had we had a couple different couple different names. Um, and, Jocko. <laughs> uh, well, that would have that would have been good. Um, uh, it's it's interesting because because we didn't we went with the musicians for Dylan and Lennon. And then we went for the song for Layla because I just thought that was such, it's such a beautiful name, yeah, um, and such a beautiful song. Wait, so I, it's funny because um, my experience with Layla, I had a funny experience after I'd lived with the song for forty years or so. I'm in the car with Dylan and Lennon and telling him, you know, we're going to have a, your little sister, and we decided we're going to call her Layla after this song. Let me play you this song. So I play him the song, and they said, "Cool," and I said. I said, Dylan, you hear that that's in D minor, right? That thing. And he goes, no, it's not. I said, yeah, yeah, the beginning. Da -da 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 -da, it's D minor. He goes, it's it's actually not D minor. It's more like E flat minor. I was like, what? <laughs> I've been listening to the song for, for 40 years, right? And I said, he goes, yeah, it's not really in D minor. And <laughs> I come home and I play it. And it's, it's out of tune, right? It's sharp. And, and then I go and look and they had the ending of the song was done, I think, three weeks later that jam, the piano part, and they spliced it together. But that was in D flat and the beginning part was down a half step. So they tuned that down and sped up the beginning so they would match. So it's the front half of the, yeah, so the keys would match. Wow. And the engineer, Tom Dowd, who was, uh, worked on the Manhattan Project and was a, um, uh, I don't know if he was a physicist, but he was a famous record producer, Tom Dowd. He actually recorded that. 
and a brilliant musician. And and um, I think he invented the 16 track, maybe Tom Dowd, but it's a great documentary on him. But he talks about how Layla came together, that those two things were put together. They were like, how are we going to end the song? And a few weeks later, they they tracked the ending. So the, the the first part was totally written before they even knew what was recorded. That yes, that was that was a whole separate part of the song, kind of like wow. Sergeant Pet, like um, Strawberry Fields. Strawberry Fields is two different takes in different keys because John Lennon liked the orchestration uh, of that George Martin had done for the ending of the song, and about a minute in, there's a huge edit. They sped up. If you ever th- listen to Strawberry Fields, John Lennon's voice sounds very high mm. because the tape is so sped up. It doesn't sound like him at all. Wow. So Because it was played in a different key and they used tape speed. That's crazy. And and so, and Dwayne Allman played the slide guitar, right, in that second part? Yes. Is he in the first yeah. part as well or is that just clapped in overdub? Yes, he's in the first part too. Oh, okay. So he was there for both. Yeah. Yeah. And that song, I believe, I believe so. I'm, I'm, I'm just recalling this from memory, but yeah. And that's the song that that ended George Harrison's marriage. You know yeah. that, right? Because uh, oh. Eric was in love with Patty Harrison, and I heard an interview with her where she said, you know, she was sort of going back and forth. She loved them both. She didn't want to leave George, and she heard that's Eric came and played that I, I don't know if it was the studio recording or he played it on guitar or what and she said when a man writes Layla for you 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 gotta leave your husband <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. those were the good old days right it's uh it was crazy times those guys lived in yeah yeah it's so weird I mean these guys who have thousands of women clamoring for their attention and they're fighting over this one woman like what I sometimes think they cultivated drama in their lives in order to inspire creativity. You know, I that that is one thing I'm really fascinated about that time period, um, because um, most artists in the 60s and 70s made at least one record, if not two records a year. Not only would they make the records, and 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 the, I I got a chance to meet Elton John related to this story um, after a session uh, at this place Tree Sound here in town. This is in two thousand five. He was in the A room recording, and I was working with a band called Jump Little Children. We were on our first day, and so I'm waiting for the band to come in. Uh, I couldn't see them because they didn't have a window with a control room in in the B studio. So I talked to the band and be like, "Hey, let's start out first take, guys." Guys, what's up? Hey, you guys there? Nothing. I tell my assistant, go out there and see what's going on. Maybe the headphones are not working. So he goes out. A couple minutes later, they they all come walking back in stunned. And I said, what? He said, Elton John just walked in and introduced himself. I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah. He says he's a huge fan of our band because they had released a record. This was a, a small band from South Carolina that had done it. They were on a major label. They were on Atlantic Records, but they had this a song um, called Cathedrals, and Elton loved this song and had bought the record and was a huge fan of the band. And he came in to introduce himself to the band. And he told us, hey, when you're done with the session, come on over to Studio A and hang out. So at 8.30, we're done. We call over, hey, is Elton there? Yeah. He said, come on over. So we walk over. The 
200 feet. And Bernie Toppin is there. Elton's band with Nigel on drums. The whole band is there, like the original band. And he introduces me to Bernie Toppin. I, I get introduced to Elton. And we start talking. And Elton was so cool and knew every current band that was out. And we start talking about touring. And he said, and I asked him, I said, um, how did you write all that music back then? He goes, you know, we had this thing. We would take two weeks off, write and record a record, and then go tour for six months and come back, take two weeks, write and record a record, and go back out and tour. That's just what we did. He said, it's just like exercising or something. You always were practicing writing. That's how you got good at writing. And if you think the Beatles did... In 65, I think it was, they did Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Help, I think it was, all in one calendar year, like within 365 days. They wrote and recorded three albums and released, like January, June, and December. It's insane. Yeah. So so do you think that, I mean, I don't know what's going on in the music industry now, if, if drugs are as central, um, but certainly... You know, the psychedelics, the the sort of revolution in music from like 65 to 70, you know, Hendrix. I can't imagine Hendrix without psychedelics, you know, or, right. you know, Parliament Funkadelic or, or the later Beatles. Um, although yeah. they denied, it's weird, they denied ever using psychedelics um, until very recently. I think, you know, in the last 10 years or so uh, in interviews, they've the surviving Beatles have copped to it. But I always found that weird. Like there's this famous Playboy interview with John Lennon just before he, he was killed. 1980. Yeah. Yeah. A beautiful interview. But he, even in that interview, he's like, oh, no, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds had nothing to do with LSD. It was this painting, my daughter's friend or something, uh, son's friend. Um, why do you think they denied that? I mean, they didn't give a shit, right? I mean, they were... Like, why deny? I don't know. I, I don't get it. I know. I don't I don't know. Uh, you know, they they never shied away from any controversies, really. Right? <laughs> they cultivated it. Like, yeah. I know. What is that? What 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 would what would that uh, you know, why would that be important? The mm. what your your question though about about contemporary music um Beginning in the early 2000s, um, as uh, if you take 2000s being the peak of the music industry, profit-wise, okay, and then a very sharp decline. Album budgets started to decline. In addition to that, all the senior A&R people would get fired because their salaries would be high. An A&R guy, a senior A&R guy, head of A&R would be paid 750 grand. Well, they couldn't afford salaries like that anymore, right? Mm. They could barely afford the buildings they were in. Yeah, at the time, these big major labels. So they start firing these people. And these people would typically have experience making records and have been in the business for years, right? So they know the right producers to put with bands. Well, then the lower level guys didn't have any confidence. And I'm generalizing a little bit, but but it's pretty much true. So they would go out and rely on producers. They would hire producers, and then they would get producers that could co-write the stuff. Then they get people that could play their parts so you have session guys playing every part on every rock record in the early 2000s. You have uh, co-writers on everything with the, with the artists instead of the artists. Instead of going out and finding people that could actually write their own songs. They find someone that could sing 
and then they replaced the band and they would fix all the parts and auto-tune. It basically took all the soul out of rock music, of all types of music. And now I just did a video on uh, this Katy Perry song the other day. And yeah, I saw that. It has nine songwriters on it. I mean, nine songwriters. Yeah. It's like like they're, they're, they're resorting to, to stealing the songs, to imitating songs, and then you have to include them as songwriters. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Find artists that can write their own music. So, I, I, I mean, I was in a pl in place called Goa, like, 15, 20 years ago uh, in India. And it's it's on the beach and it's like one of these uh, – it was sort of a a place with a lot of uh, – what's it called? Like rave music or something? Like boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom, you know? And, mm -hmm. and people would take ecstasy there and dance all night and, you know, flashing lights and all that. And I remember thinking like this is not fucking music. Music is created by human beings. It's not created by machines. And I would rant about this. And some of the young people around me were like, yeah, you're old. What the hell do you know? Is the, you know <laughs> Boomer. <this> is, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it, but I still think I'm right. I think music is organic. And if it's not organic, it's not fucking music. I don't know what it is. But, you know, I've, I listened to your, your thing and you, you just did a thing recently or, or I just listened to it recently. Why boomers hate pop music. And right. a lot of it was like because there's no variation. The tempo stays the same <laughs> through the whole song. It's all just fucking metronomic no nonsense. Huh? Yeah, I know. There's yeah, it's, there's no dynamics. There's no tempo changes. There's no humans. How about that? You know, what, no humans involved. So what's happening? Is that where I mean, is music? over is it is pop music well, done has it hit a wall well the barrier to entry the the, uh, the unfortunate thing about technology is that there's really no barrier to entry to be a musician now you can um if you open up logic which is an apple program for example they have a drum thing on there that you just drag a little circle around it creates different beats right it's a it uses ai there's, so there's AI drummers. You can create drum beats. You pull in a sound here, a sample here. You put a bass line or whatever. Then you then you you write a melody or do a rap or whatever. And then you can then you put it out in the internet the next day on TikTok and and it catches on or whatever, right? There is no. Well, I went to Hamburg with the band and we played eight hours a night. We knew a thousand cover songs and we did it from 1957 <laughs> to 1962. Yeah, yeah. So you don't even right? have to be a musician to create music, is what you're saying, if you know how to use the app or the the programs, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, that's, so this that's, is a big um, break for me. Th there you go. It's <laughs> but Chris, it's it's like you don't have to be able to sing in tune. You can use mm -hmm. auto tune, and not only can you use it, it's accepted. People expect you to use auto tune. Yeah. As a matter of fact. Kids nowadays, kids or, you know, people that I had coming in the studio, even 10 years ago, they would imitate the sound of autotune in their voice. It was, it's so weird. Yeah. It's like, are you singing with autotune on? <laughs> You're like, what? Like, are you, it sounds like you have autotune on. I, I asked my son, you what, have autotune on? No, I don't. They're just singing it. They sound like they're singing with autotune. That's so strange how, Thanks, how things, things replicate themselves in almost like parasites in people who don't know what they're doing. My favorite example of that is um, I had a friend who was in medical school uh, doing residency 
uh, I think he was at Duke in the late 80s. And he told me that the more famous Michael Jordan became, the more people came to the emergency room needing tongue surgery because kids were like going for a layup and they'd stick their tongue out the way Michael Jordan did, right? He had some weird tick that made him do that and they were doing it, imitating him, and then they'd bite their tongues off. Oh, jeez. What the fuck is going on, man? (laughs) Or they say the Spanish... that's not not good. You know the Spanish... the the th sound in in yeah. Spanish and Spanish Barth- apparently Barcelona yeah Barcelona yeah cerveza apparently that's because the king had a speech defect and everyone started copying him because it was cool because he was the king and it spread through the whole damn country. Interesting. Yeah, so. makes sense. So what? So I, I think I cut you off. Where where is music going? Is it, I mean if. If that kind of human involvement is being drained away because of the technology and it sounds like actual talent is is not really valuable anymore. It's more about, you know, can you stand on stage? Like is Millie Vanilli, is that where everything is now? Well, it's more that, that the major labels still rely on a certain farm system of producers um and managers, uh, you know, to find talent. A lot of them find talent on, on places like TikTok. That's where they, that's where they see these people. But um, <clears throat> there are some of the most talented musicians that have ever lived that are alive right now. Um, there have been incredible strides in the guitar on, on a technical side and, and just d- different ways to play the guitar, for example, than have ever than than has ever happened. Um, the g- greatest guitar virtuosos that have ever lived are living right now. There's a lot of really great things that are going on. A lot of incredibly talented young young people. Um, uh, it's just not necessarily reflected in popular music, but you could say that there's been a dumbing down of popular music really since the since the 60s and 70s. If you if you take it just structurally. Um, uh, in 1970, 50 years ago, right around this time, I think it was, um, Bridge Over Troubled Water was the number one song. Now, Bridge Over Troubled Water is incredibly complex. I mean, the piano part, the melody, the modulation in the, in the, in the bridge, the lyrics are inc- just absolutely brilliant. And we have, you know, Cardi B with WAP now. Now, what is that? You know, that's a three-note bass line, right? And, um, you know, most of the pop music, whether it's Harry Styles or, you know, things that are on the charts right now, that is very basic, right? They have they have no modulations to different keys. It's not like Pink Floyd. It's, they have no odd time signatures. You never find a song in, in seven or in five or there's no, you know, I mean, there are groups that are doing incredibly interesting progressive music. It's just not stuff that's popular to people. And if you have a a population that is, um, you know, been musically malnourished, maybe you could say, for, mm. for decades, then their tastes are very, they've been eating or they've been, you know, eating the equivalent of potatoes and white bread or whatever it might be. And, and if you throw in a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, kale... Or whatever, like what is that? John Cale, 
John Kale, <laughs> throwing some John Kale. <laughs> That'd <Yeah>. be good. <laughs> That'll um, blow their mind. You know, but but all the people that we grew up listening to in the sixties, seventies, their parents were born. They were all born before the Second World War. They grew up. It doesn't matter if it was Clapton or Jimmy Page or or, or you know. Everybody from all the bands that we grew up listening to in the 60s, they grew up listening to big band music and things like skiffle. But that was and, and the chord structures in big band music rhythmically, it was far more sophisticated. They had augmented chords, diminished chords, half diminished chords, major seventh chords, all these things. And the Beatles, the Stones, even the Stones, Angie is a very complex song with a lot of modulations and and uh, key changes for those of you out there who don't know what modulation is. And and um that so the music that they grew up was comp was complex and they wanted to hear those colors but those things started to drift out of favor and it was at post grunge even post mid 90s uh well if you think of the kind of lilith fair era with Sheryl crow and and um and sarah mclaughlin and a lot of the great female artists of the mid 90s that had very sophisticated songs Ten thousand Maniacs. then you get into the early Early, yeah, and then you got into the early two thousands, and a lot of new metal became very simplistic, rhythmically. Um, it was all uh, beat detected, meaning there was no tempo variation, all quantized, hyper edited. That's that's all part of this style. No blues elements. None of the melodies had had any blues in them. None of the riffs really had any blues in them, and that was the dominant uh, thing in popular music was hip-hop, and new metal. And there's not really necessarily, uh, uh, you know, comp complex chord progressions in hip-hop, right? Um, I mean, there's, yeah, there are some, but but um, but they're not the kind of songs that you would hear people play, uh, you know, even in Motown or, uh, or any of the music in the 60s and 70s, any genre would have very sophisticated chord structures and melodies. If you have a, if you have a sophisticated chord progression, you're going to have a sophisticated melody, period. Mm -hmm. So um, people's ears don't want to accept things that are not in perfectly in time anymore and perfectly in tune for the most part. So when when people who are raised on this uh, you know, low, low nutrient music here. Low information music. Yeah. So you, so you think that when, when people raised on this kind of music, when they hear the stones or, you know, Clapton or Hendrix or whatever, you think that it sounds sloppy to them. Does it sound it like out of time, out of tune. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not metronomic. It's not hyper edited. It sounds weird to them. But don't they have, because they are human beings, don't they feel the emotional content? You know what I mean? Like, even if you've never had a, a certain kind of food, your body might react to it. Your body might say, God, this is what I've been wanting all these years, you know? Because the thing is, you know, I think about, like, you're talking about the progression of from, you know, jazz to big band to you know, rock and blues in the 60s and the sort of fusion of rock and blues with the Stones and the Beatles and, you know, covers and all that, um, which was kind of, I guess, the the high point of musical creativity in some ways, at least popular music. Um, it feels to me like 
you know, if you turn on the FM radio now, you're still hearing the Stones and Clapton and Hendrix. Yes. <clears throat> you know, uh, it's still it's still there. It's still it's still recognized as really high quality. Whereas I don't know if you if you turned on the radio in 1968, you probably weren't going to hear Perry Como or you know some kind of big band music, you know, mixed in there with the contemporary stuff. So it feels to me like, you know, as much as the contemporary music has lost quality, it feels like the audience still recognizes what's good, even if they don't know why. Yeah, um, I'm not sure about young kids, though, um, that, you know, a lot of the music that that uh, the classic music, the heritage music that's getting played now is getting played for an older audience. Mm. Um you know, you can't, you can't really, it's tough to generalize about this stuff, obviously, you know, uh, two guys in their late fifties t- talking about this, that, uh, a generalizing about, but I mean, but I have it's young what kids, we do. I mean, I'm a seven year old. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. you know, I listen to the music and they, and my kids are like, oh, that sounds like when they hear autotune, that sounds like a robot. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, exactly. Good. Good. That's, that's a. <laughs> robot voice robot. and they're and honestly chris they're not interested in any any of this popular music yeah well that's it's, good it's I mean, boring to them yeah good they're well they are they're sophisticated obviously um i got a whole list of questions i i i wrote down i almost never take notes for a podcast um but there's so many things like after our last one i felt like um I don't know. I felt a little, a little sheepish. Like I had just, I have a friend who's an NFL player, the former NFL uh-huh. player. And when we hang out, sometimes I like, I want to ask him questions about what was it like to be an NFL player? But then after a while, it's like this poor guy, he gets this all the time, you know? Um, and to just sit here. No and one like, ever asked me questions, Chris. So ask me questions. <laughs> no one asks you questions. Okay. So here's one for you. Uh, are you saving? Uh, you, uh, what makes this song great? I think you're up to episode what eighty something at this point. Are you ninety nine? Is my next one. Oh, I didn't know you were that far yeah. along. Are, have yep. you been saving something for hundred? You don't have to tell me what it I is. I I have thought of a couple things, but I'm not. I don't have anything locked in. Mm. I'll tell you an interesting thing. I I did a video recently called the top 10 underrated guitar solos of all time. And I had um, Blue Oyster Cult, Don't Fear the Reaper, because it's a great guitar solo. Awesome. And Don Roser, Buck Dharma, wrote, uh, somebody, somebody that follows my channel connected me with him, hmm. um, the singer who wrote wrote the song. And he played the guitar solo, singer from Blue Oyster Cult. So, and we happen to have a, a few mutual friends, Buck Dharma and I, from Ithaca, because he lived in Ithaca from 85 to 91. Was that their only hit? Was uh, Godzilla, uh, Godzilla, and Don't Fear the Reaper were the oh, two big hits. Godzilla, okay. So, um, anyway, so I talked to Don. I emailed Don. I said, "Hey, I have this series. What makes this song great? Would you be interested in being in my Don't Fear the Reaper episode?" He said, "Absolutely." So, oh, sweet, that'd be great. That's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That is that that song. They don't do that. How long is that song? Six, seven minutes or something. And it's got a a big jam in the middle. There's a thing that I, I don't know if there's a name for this in music, but there's a thing that that song does. Um, what was the song that the it was a Springsteen song wrapped up like a douche, you know, the runner in the night blinded yeah. by the light. 
that yep. uh, someone covered. And who covered that? Manfred Mann. Manfred Mann's Earth Band, exactly. Yep. Um, that song does it, and, and uh, Steppenwolf Magic Carpet Ride does it, where the, the music sort of gets all sort of like, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like it's disassembled sort of, and then it all just sort of goes and goes right into place. It, is there a name for that? Like that sort of spacey thing that comes in and just crystallizes? You know what I mean? I, I, I always just think of those as like psychedelic, uh, uh, a psychedelic uh, experience, but, uh, uh, you know, temporary psychedelic experience. I love they that. They do it in Day of the Life, the Beatles, you know, with oh. the orchestral swell where everybody's just a lot of improvising and all of a sudden it sucks down to ding, 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 ding. Woke ding, up, you know. got out of bed, dragged a comb <laughs> across. Yeah, that song, they actually go through different states of consciousness, right? He's dreaming. I read the news today, oh boy, and then he wakes up, and then he goes, and then I slipped into a dream. Ah, it's fucking amazing. That's I was going to ask was, you. That was one of the best collaborations of the two of them. That that song. That is like the ultimate Beatles collaboration, right there. Uh, Lennon it, McCartney. Right, Lennon was writing most of it, and I guess he went to McCartney, and McCartney gave him the "I'd love to turn you on" line. Was that what it was? I remember. I'm, um, I'm not sure about that, yeah. um, but that might be a good song for number 100. I think, I re if I remember correctly, Leonard Bernstein called that the best five minutes of music in the 20th century. So, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Um, okay, so I asked you about saving for 100. Uh, what are your favorite cover versions? Are, are there any songs where you're like, damn, this artist captured the essence of this song better than the original? I mean, all along the watchtower. Well, the, yeah. Um, you know, Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah to me mm. is another one, even though Leonard Cohen's is, is, is great. Um, uh, Manfred Mann's Blinded by the Light. It's great. that Yeah. Springsteen's is terrible. And it's also weird when you know the cover first and then you hear the original and you're like, this isn't right. This guy didn't know what he was doing here. <laughs> it's weird. I tell you, I, I, one of my favorite covers, it's not quite a cover, um, where Eddie Vedder sings The Waiting with Tom Petty's band. And Tom sings The Bridge, but Eddie sings the verses. And it is phenomenal. It's live. Mm. He just sat in with, with them. Probably It's probably in the mid-90s or so. And, oh, it's so good. Eddie just sounds incredible. And and it. Um, if I want to listen to a cover and I want to listen to a Tom Petty cover, that's, that's what I go for, The Waiting with mm. Eddie Vedder singing. It's, it's, I mean, it's really incredibly well well done you ever listened to eddie vetter's um the soundtrack to into the wild yeah it's yeah it's great unbelievable i'm a huge eddie vetter fan he's a person i would love to meet sometime um i'm i'm just you know i love pearl i love all grunge everybody knows that about me i love grunge but i i mean i just you know i mean no Chris Cornell anymore. No Lane Staley. No no Kurt Cobain. Eddie's. No Scott Weiland. No, you know. I mean, even though Scott wasn't really grunge, but Eddie's the only one left. 
Mm. And um, I'd like to meet one of those guys sometime. Yeah. You don't talk about classical music much. Is that uh, lack of interest in the audience? No. Or? No, I'm I um so in the beginning of my channel in 2016 and the, nobody knows my my early early videos um they were all jazz and classical videos. Um uh I I don't necessarily talk about classical pieces even though I love classical music. I mean, I've I have my undergrad degree is in classical bass. I played an orchestra from you know, third grade on through my, uh, you know, getting my uh, my master's degree. And um, uh, one of the reasons, Chris, was that um, uh, you can't play a lot of the recordings without getting takedowns. Really? And if you can't play the recordings, um, then it <laughs> you can't really talk about the, the music. And and the recordings, if you play something that's... that's uh, Maybe where the copyright is out of date or something like that. Like a lot of the recordings, I want I want to play particular recordings that are the tempos that they should be to me. And and a lot of those, if they're on Deutsche Grammophone or whatever label they're on, you just can't play the things. I mean, that, yeah. that's really a uh, that that's 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 a thing I've been fighting on YouTube forever. Yeah, blocking. That's a bummer. Wait, who are your who are your go to composers or or pieces of music? So, um, I, when my kids were young, all I played them was classical music. Um, I, as far as, um, you know, when growing up, I loved a lot of Baroque Renaissance music, you know, John Dowland, um, early music, Baroque music, whether it was, um, Bach or, um, or Handel or, you know, uh, into Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven. And then obviously, not obviously, but Schubert, Schumann, Mendelssohn into the Mendelssohn. Chopin. Uh, the, I just, I would kind of go through the entire, uh, uh, I would take, you know, months and months and listen to all the Bach cello suites, all mm -hmm. the, you know, the entire well-tempered clavier. And these are things that I would play for my kids when they were babies, is this kind of music. Mm. Um, that, which I call high information music. And then, you know, Cause you were I know to all the big stimulate, piano can... Were you trying yeah. to stimulate brain growth? Is Was that the yeah. idea? Yeah, so so I have a theory that um, what was kind of the thing I did with Dylan that I if you play high information music for a baby instead of playing nursery rhymes, it will change the brain. Or I thought would it's would these sophisticated pieces sound normal to the baby? Mm -hmm. um, and I I have a friend named Iden Essen who's one of the greatest improvisers I've ever heard. And I had these improvisations I recorded of Iden's. He's a piano player from Turkey. He's 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 my age. And I recorded these things in 86, 87, 88. It's just solos that he played, the solo pieces that he improvised. And I played those for Dylan all the time, constantly. And they're very, very beautiful, very sophisticated, harmonically advanced things. So I played them. I said, if you, if a baby listened to Iden's music, what would it sound normal to them? Then I started playing Prokofiev and I played Schoenberg and I played Stravinsky and I played Copeland and I played Barber and I played you know, all the, the 
um, you know, Elliot Carter, all the modern classic classical music uh, masters from the twentieth century. Atonal. Yeah, yeah, atonal music, Aburn, <laughs> uh, Schoenberg, Bear, yes. Wow. Um, and and I would play a lot of sophisticated jazz from Oscar Peterson, McCoy Tyner, Parker, Coltrane, John, um, Keith Jarrett, Matheny. Um, I would play all that. Alan Holdsworth, more sophisticated things like that. Mahavishnu, and a lot of really sophisticated drumming. Um, you know, Vinnie Caliuda, drummers like that, Gary Husband, Chad Wackerman, a lot of people that played with Zappa mm-hmm. um, and and things like that. I played that for Dylan and um, and and the thing and I and I would play a lot of Bach and certain Beethoven pieces, Beethoven's fourth piano concerto, which is, is to me is one of the greatest concertos ever written it's absolutely brilliant it was uh he debuted it on the last concert he ever did i think it was december uh december 8th uh 1816 i think it was no 1808 1808 there was the last concert beethoven ever performed and and in that he debuted the the fourth piano concerto the fifth symphony the sixth symphony um it was like a six-hour concert and it was beethoven's <laughs> last time he performed uh, he uh, performed the fourth piano concerto, but he couldn't hear the orchestra at that point. Yeah, so he couldn't he couldn't play it without some. So anyway, so that is one of the pieces. Here I go down the rabbit hole of classical music. Mm. So I would play all that sophisticated modern classical and modern jazz for Dylan, and then I found out, yeah, it does sound normal to them if you play them that. Not only does it that, but it changes their brain, and. That's why I think Dylan has perfect pitch. Mm. I'm, I'm positive that that's why Dylan had, has perfect pitch. It's because of listening to all that high information music. Right. So. That makes sense. And it shows how, I mean, there, this pattern is replicated in so many aspects of modern life where we, you know, we give kids baby food so they don't chew and that messes up their jaws and their teeth. And then we wonder why our kids are, you know, need braces. Well, it's because you didn't let them chew when they were, you know what I mean? We think we need to simplify and water it down, but when we need to be going in the opposite direction. Chris, we have seven kids in my family. None of us have braces, you know? Mm. But they started feeding us within five days. You start eating solid food. Yeah. Yeah. That was just common. You know? Well, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's true that um, kids who don't if you I'd chew, never heard that actually about 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 chewing. I'd, I'd never heard that before. You just said that, though. Yeah. Well, it, it actually affects the jawbone. The jawbone elongates in response to pressure. So when kids don't chew hard on meat or bones or something, their jaws don't grow as much. And so they get, you know, like my my jaw's not as prominent as yours because I didn't chew as much when I was a kid and I did have fucking braces. Um, but, yeah, it's like the hygiene hypothesis. You know, you protect the kids from all the dirt and the germs and then they end up with autoimmune deficiencies. You know, it's all it's the modern world, man. Um, I wanted to ask you something uh, going down my list here before before I lose you. Uh, what? Are your favorite bad songs? There must be favorite songs. What, bad, bad. <laughs> yeah, there must be songs that you listen to it and you say, like, that is not a very good song, but it touches me. 
Like I, I heard you talking about um, America and how these. Mm-hmm. I think the, it was the video was like this song changed my life or something um, because it you you made a leap with guitar and you know. And like I, I was into America. I had America's greatest hits, a horse with no name, whatever. I hear those songs and they touch me. But I know it's mm-hmm. at least I think it's not a particularly complex song, or you know, it's not the Beatles or something. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, are there songs that are meaningful to you because you know you heard them when you were fell in love for the first time or something, or you know, bread or some shit like that? I love uh, there's some bread songs I think are amazing. I've listened to bread in the past week, but um, <laughs> really? okay. So there's I, I, I've been I've been wanting to to do a, a guilty pleasure uh, there you video go. songs yeah. that I think right. So there's a, a movie that came out in 2000, Rockstar, with Mark Wahlberg and Jennifer Aniston. Now the movie is now listed as a comedy, but I don't think when they made it, it was supposed to be a comedy. <laughs> but it's it's a comedy. It's a great 80s metal movie, and it's so fun because 80s uh, metal movies are fun. Yeah. And there's a song at the end called Colorful, when the Mark Wahlberg's character becomes Eddie Vedder, essentially. He moves goes back to Seattle, he quits the the metal band he's in. And they do, he does a song that he lip sings at the end, and it's called Colorful. And the, it's actually written by the singer from the Verve Pipe. Okay, they had the song The Freshman. And it's a great song. And I've heard him do it. The guy from the Verve Pipe sings the song. I don't know if you remember that that band from the early mid-90s. They were kind of a one-hit wonder band. They had a song called The Freshman. That was their one hit. But the song Colorful is in the movie. And it's... It's a great song. It's like a guilty pleasure song, but only the movie version that has extra reverb on it to make it sound like it's coming through a PA because he's at this kind of dinner club thing. And it's kind of a quasi grunge song, but not really. Um, And I've heard the guy from the Verve Pipe do it on his own. It's never as good as the one in the movie that Mark Wahlberg lip syncs to. Hmm. And uh, so that's like a guilty pleasure song that I I really like. uh, that I'll go back and watch the the end of the movie just to listen. I probably should just record it off the movie and I can just play it. But uh, what what are your favorite both feature films that are about music, like Almost Famous is one that comes to mind for me, and also your favorite documentaries about music that you would recommend to people? Well, my favorite documentary is definitely Spinal Tap. <laughs> um, no question about it. Um, yeah, I um, Stonehenge. My, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite, and I think that 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 was really about Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, that that has uh-huh. to be. I got to ask Don, Don when I when I talk to him if that if he thinks this, that uh, that that was actually about about, about Blue Oyster Cult. Um, movies about music. I also famous is a great movie. Um. Um, I love the Beatles movies. Mm. Um, uh, um, I'm trying to think. Um, but uh, I thought the Queen movie was okay. Um, I thought the Queen movie was pretty good, actually. It was okay, I guess. Um, Do you see the think open ones that? Um, I'm trying trying to think if I saw the Elton John. I probably did. If I can't remember, no, no, I don't. I don't think I saw it. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not really a movies about. Well, no, certain ones like I. Re, I like singles. 
I thought that was a great movie, the the Cameron Crowe movie. He, Cameron Crowe mm. makes good good uh, movies about music. Yeah. Um, and that soundtrack is a great soundtrack. Which leads to the next question. If there are soundtracks that you, um, you know, like, uh, you know, some movies aren't about music, but the soundtrack is just fucking spectacular. Like The Passion, uh, which Peter Gabriel did with all those North African yes. musicians. That's incredible a great soundtrack. Yeah. Um, yeah. He I read an interview with him one time where they asked him what was his favorite music that he had ever composed or and he said the passion and I'd never heard of it. Um, then I went out and got the CD and uh, I think that CD probably got me laid more than any other CD other than uh, Avalon by Roxy Music. I think, I, you know, I haven't. Um... I haven't listened to the Passion in a long time. That's something that I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out and 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 listen to. Um, that was a great that was a great soundtrack. I mean, Peter Gabriel. Um, just absolutely brilliant. You know, I've been I've been thinking about about singers that um, I have a couple thoughts, and these are going to be video ideas, but. Um, singers that are underrated, mm. which I would consider Peter Gabriel is one. I think Phil Collins is an underrated singer. I think they're both incredibly good singers, very different singers. But um, and then you have your singers that are um, that never would have gotten uh, a record deal nowadays because of their appearance or their voice. I mean, like acquired taste singers. Mm. Um, uh, Neil Young, Getty Bob Lee, Dylan. Getty Bob Lee. Dylan, yeah. um, Paul Simon has has a kind of an odd voice. Hmm. Um, uh, I mean, so many singers are acquired taste singers, really, that you don't you wouldn't say, oh, that person is is a, a great singer. They have they have a such unique voices. Joe Cocker, just Joe Cocker. I mean, Eddie Vedder has an odd voice, really. If you think about it, people kind of make fun of it. It's really people that make fun of 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 these voices. I mean, Getty Lee's voice. Mm. I love his voice. Perry Farrell from uh, from uh, Jane's Addiction. Great voice, but a totally weird voice. Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips. Love his voice. Janis Joplin. But not a Janis Joplin. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because what we're, what we're talking about are immediately recognizable voices. Yes. Right? And you're saying they yeah. wouldn't get a record contract today when these are people were pulling out of the air from 50 years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we, we hear it in our heads. We know exactly what they sound like. Yeah. That, that's an interesting thing, how industry sort of homogenizes and shoots itself in the foot by eliminating true creativity. I mean, I heard well, I your, think it, it, I think it eliminates ahead. people too, just by their physical appearance, you know, um, mm. uh, that some of these, artists wouldn't get anywhere because of their appearance. I mean, there's plenty of people you could say that about. Um, now, I mean, there, I mean, not Robert Plant or, or uh, I mean, Mick, uh, uh, Mick or uh, Pete, uh, 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 Roger Daltrey or people like that. They're the archetypal rock stars, you know, but, but there are plenty of people that were, you know, uh, Tall, you know, or not tall, or they'd have thinning hair, whatever, you know. And Van Morrison, and, um, yeah, there you go, Van Morrison, perfect, example. dumpy. Would Van angry. Morrison get a get a <laughs> right? Would he get a record deal now? I mean, you know, 
Well, he barely got one oh. back in the 60s. I, you've probably heard right. all the stories about Astro yeah. Weeks, like they didn't want to. Yeah, yeah, Van Morrison, hard to get along with. Have you ever heard of? Uh, I mean, the Beatles to... couldn't even. The Beatles couldn't even get a record deal. It took them forever. <sighs> it's fucking crazy, man. <laughs> um, there you go. You, uh, we were talking about soundtracks. You ever heard of a? There's a a film that almost no one has seen. It was a very strange movie. Um, it sort of came out in 1983 or four, probably. It's called Siesta. Very. I know it. So check out the cast. Uh, Isabella Rossellini, Ellen Barkin, uh, Gabriel Byrne, um, the guy who played the president in the West Wing. Uh, Martin uh, Sheen. Martin Sheen. Amazing cast. And, and I'm forgetting four or five people on that level, right? Soundtrack by Marcus Miller and Miles Davis. I don't know when Miles Davis died, but this was toward the end of his life for sure. 91. 91. Okay, yeah. And this came out in 83, 84. Um, no one's ever heard of it. And it is one of the most incredible, and the great film, very weird film. Half of it's in a dream, and it was just too strange for audiences, I think. But the soundtrack is insane. It's basically like a funk um sort of uh, echo of sketches of Spain. So a lot of this, a lot of similar themes from sketches of, of Spain, but with a really fat baseline and, and sort of, you know, late jazzy miles. I mean, all miles is jazzy, but you know, that kind of funk hip hop miles mm -hmm. that he was doing toward the end there. Um, really worth checking out. And the same time that movie came out, I went to see Charlie Hayden at the village Vanguard which I heard you mention in one of your things. That was very weird. I didn't really know who he was. I, um, but I had a friend come into New York. I was living in the East Village at the time. And this friend came to New York. It was the first time he'd been in the city. And uh, we were going to go see Midnight Oil, this Australian band. Yeah, yeah. Um, at uh, what's it called the 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 something east the you know there's the one in San Francisco and then there was one in New York I forget it was a big venue in Upper West Side I think um, and I said to him do you wanna you wanna get high for this concert and he was like oh I don't know man New, New York's kind of blowing my mind I don't think I can handle you know <laughs> so okay fine so we go we go to the show and it's amazing I, I was I really. I was really into Midnight Oil back in the in the eighties, and um, and then the the next day he said, "Okay, uh, I'd love to go see some jazz." He was really into jazz. I was like, "All right, man, look in the paper, whatever you want." And Charlie Hayden was playing at the Village Vanguard, and I, I've never been there. I, I have no idea. I didn't know much about jazz. Um, but he wanted to go and he's like, Hey, you know, we didn't get high last night, but maybe we can get high tonight. Cause I think I can handle it now. Okay. So we ate, uh, a bunch of, uh, I think it was like edibles or something. We got really, really high. We go to this club and I'm expecting like a smoky, dark, you know, jazz and it's a fucking dinner place. And there are these tables right. And you go. It's totally and, weird. Uh, it's totally weird. And it's bright lights. And it's just like, oh, my God, this was a big mistake because now I'm really <laughs> high. 
and we're sitting across from each other on these tables. And then the, like the woman next to me is like closer to me than he is. And, and he's not used to New York. So he doesn't understand that it's essential that you pretend you can't hear the people next to you. Right. Right. So we're looking at each other like, Oh dude, this is like, I'm about to like have a panic attack. And the woman next to me laughs at something her date says. And then my friend looks at her and says, oh, do you thought that, that was funny? And it like broke that wall, you know, just turned into a fucking disaster. So I distracted myself because there was a table back behind the stage, sort of on the side of the stage. And there was this beautiful woman sitting there by herself, just so sophisticated and just like, another species, you know, and I was just looking at her like, oh, man, you know, someday. And uh, and she looked at me a couple times and I was even having this fantasy like, hey, maybe I'll buy her a drink after the show, you know, total delusion. And they take a break and Charlie Hayden goes down and sits down next to her and gives her a kiss. And I was like, oh, good for Charlie. Good for Charlie. Anyway, that's Man, my that's, that, that's that's uh, I mean, 83, 84. That's um, that was probably the last time. 84 was the last time I was at the Village Vanguard when I saw Matheny play there. It's been, been years and years. But the first time I went there, I couldn't believe. I was like, this is the Village Vanguard. It's kind of like the baked potato out in L.A., which is the, the club, club that all the jazz guys play out there, all the fusion guys. And and you go in and it holds 40 people or so. And it's like, wait, this is the baked potato? This is the Village Vanguard that's on all these famous jazz records? What? Yeah. It's like as big as my room here. It's probably it's probably smaller than my room here, actually. Am I am I describing it correctly? Was is it on Sixth Avenue? Um It was like oh, sixth and uh, west fourth or something like because I may have the wrong place. Is it a dinner place? It's like a, it's a really small place with full of tables. It's downstairs. You you walk down downstairs. I mean, it used to be downstairs. I don't know yeah. what, what it what yeah. it is now, but well, someone um, listening to this can correct me if I'm talking about the wrong club. It was it was a Sixth Avenue, and it was one of these classic jazz clubs. Um, but it was dinner. I remember they brought us soup and stuff. It was very strange. Yeah, all the maybe it was uh, the the Blue Note. No, the Blue Note's down. No, uh, down. no Blue Note's no. more toward Washington Square Park or, yeah, or Square. NYU. Yeah, right. It's near NYU. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you could see anyone live at any time, so you could see Hendrix in London in 67 or whenever he first played or the Beatles in Hamburg, if you could go back in time and see anyone. Or or that Beethoven concert, that six hour. There were people at that concert like wishing they could go pee. You know, that's the, <laughs> the strangest thing. I mean, that's yeah. I think about that. There were people that were in the orchestra. There were people that I mean, people attended this thing. That that would definitely be one of the things I would want to do. Or see Bach play, meet mm. him. I mean, no question. I mean, the, that those two probably. You know, think about this. If you listen to to any late Beethoven piece, take the Ninth Symphony. So you have these this monumental seventy plus minute piece, seventy four minute piece. The last movement with the Ode to Joy in it is full chorus, full orchestra, all this stuff. He never could 
What what kind of mind would create a piece that you can never actually listen to except in your imagination? What kind of, how would you be motivated to do that? What kind of a genius? To me, that's one of the greatest feats in the history of the human race is Beethoven composing that in a silent, in, in his head. And they said he had tinnitus, tinnitus, with, with ringing, to imagine these, the, this entire orchestration, a full orchestra, you have to imagine all the parts simultaneously. And you can't even take the pleasure in of actually hearing the orchestra play. You live but, in a silent world. But didn't he hear it? I mean, don't you hear music in your head? I hear music, but, but, but that's not enjoyable. It's like imagining what something tastes like. Yeah, you know what, 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 uh, you know, uh, you know what good lasagna tastes like. But if you're just sitting around and you're starving and imagining it, it's just not, not doing it. You know, hmm. you write a seventy-four minute piece of music that you spend all in your imagination. Mm. And th that feat of, of composing things like that, when you can't even enjoy it, I don't think that there's any analogy. I can't think of any other analogy in any other art that would be like that. That you'd be driven to compose a 74 minute full orchestra piece that is revered as one of the greatest, you know, compositions ever made by a person, made by a deaf composer. Yeah. Were the late string yes. quartets also um, yeah. after he'd lost his hearing? Yeah. He lost his hearing. I th They think, you know, you don't know, but around 1816, he lived to 1827. So the last, uh, all the last string quartets were, uh, were um, he, he was deaf. And, you know, it actually his, um, from what, you know, from the letters that he wrote and things, they think that he started losing his hearing from um, from the top down. And um, his orchestrations, once he lost all his hearing, his orchestrations opened up because he wasn't relying on the minimal hearing that he had in the lower registers, you know, and, and he was then doing everything through audiating, you know, audiation and imagining the these things. And... Um, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty remarkable. So um, I can't I can't think of another a parallel in any other art where you create these great works. I mean, many great works when you you know it's so be like a painter just painting blind and you and you're just imagining it. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I'm trying to think of parallels. I, I mean, there. <clears throat> semi-parallel like um, Emily Dickinson writing poetry that she never thought anyone would read you know she just wrote these amazing poems and put them in a chest and left them there um, yeah and then and then the 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 disability opening up the artistic expression something like Django Reinhardt Right, losing a finger and that creating this whole new way of of playing a guitar because of that. It's yeah. 
really interesting. I, I mean, Hendrix, if Hendrix had been right handed, would he have been Hendrix? You know, it was oh, part of that YouTube video right there. You're a YouTuber <laughs> right there. <laughs> well, you do if it. Hendrix I'll... had been right handed. Because <laughs> he. So he did he he strung the guitar differently or did he just take a guitar no, and turn it, it over? He, he, no, he no, no. He strung the guitar differently. He played it actually left handed. All right. So the bass. No, some bass. some left handed guitar players, uh, you know, Albert King would play the, with the strings upside down. Play right handed guitar, flip it over and play. But but Jimi Hendrix played it normally as a lefty. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Do you. um. You know, talking about the experience of musicians, one thing that I think about a lot when I'm watching your videos, as I said earlier, I don't, you know, when you say, okay, look, this is a, you know, B flat, you know, declination, Aeolian, <laughs> whatever, you know, this is <laughs> foreign language to me. And um, what I'm wondering is, are you describing something? Is it... Is it as if you're describing, um, you know, a great athlete, let's say a, a basketball player, and you're saying, now look at how he uses his right calf muscle to compensate for the, the balance change when he goes up to block the shot. Are you describing something that the person, him or herself, has no idea they're doing? Or do musicians often know? I mean, I guess it depends on their training, Right. That's true, yeah. Um, you know, if they've trained in theory or classical, then they know that this chord change, you know, they know. But when, you know, when someone works out a guitar riff, like Stairway to Heaven, did was Jimmy Page thinking like, oh, now I'm going to shift into this chord and I'm going to, or is he just sitting Jimmy, in a room playing? Well, it's interesting. So Jimmy Page being a session guitar player, he, I've, I've just got his, uh, his book that he came out with, which is fantastic. It's a, it's a coffee table book. And he has charts from uh, when he was a session musician. I mean, he reads chord charts, read notation. So Jimmy Page is a great example of a person that totally knows all this stuff. Paul Simon, um, Sting. Uh, there's there's actually a lot of people that are that are that are really well trained musicians that kn would know exactly what I'm talking about. And then people like Kurt Cobain that just instinctually know the stuff. But like I always say in those videos or a lot of the videos. Um, yes, the artist didn't know, you know, Kirk Cobain didn't know this, but I know this. And now you know this, <laughs> it doesn't matter if Kirk Cobain knew what he was doing. He did. He was a genius. Right. Right. But I can explain it, you know, in this way, but that doesn't, um, but don't let that diminish. <laughs> don't let the quote unquote diminish, you know, the, how great it is just because, you know, it just, it's just the music theory is a way to speak about things when you don't have an instrument. That's right. the way I think of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I listen to a lot of world – I listen a lot of music from Africa and, and Brazil. And, um, you know, a lot of these are people – or they, they, they're from a village and, and, you know, they never had a music class and they, they're playing on a log, you know. And uh, the sophistication is off the charts, but I don't imagine that they're necessarily conscious of what they're doing in terms of, you know, some context of musical tradition or history or anything like that. Yeah, but they have their they have their own systems that their own, uh, you know, that work with their own brains. 
And they're also growing up listening to high information music. Yeah. You know, my uh, I have uh, half my family is in Africa and you can see from them, you know, they're dancing and clapping and singing. And like, that's just part of life, you know, from birth. It's it's amazing. You ever heard of a band called Orchestra Baobab? No. Really interesting band. Um, They are, I think, from Senegal and they love Cuban music. So they're African dudes playing Cuban music, singing in Spanish, which they don't speak, but they sing the songs, in, <laughs> you know, Guajira or whatever. And it's so cool because it's like, it, you know, you can almost see the circle, the circuit being closed, you know, because Cuban music is so African. And to have these African mm-hmm. dudes playing clearly <laughs> African, you know, you can just tell it an African guitar line right away that sort of clean uh, sound of it, but um, yeah, I'll send you a, a song or something. Yeah. I'll, I'll remind you about it. Okay. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask you: Have you ever heard of the Church of Saint John Coltrane? I've, I've, yes, yeah, I've heard of it. Yep. It, it was. I lived right near there in San Francisco, and uh, I walked by it one day and went in. It was amazing. <laughs> it's like they actually had a. An altar, uh, uh, what's it called? An icon, you know, those Russian uh, yeah. paintings of a religious figure. And it was John Coltrane holding the sax with like three fingers up. Uh, fantastic. It, I don't think my, it my room in uh, when I was a sophomore in college, we had the uh, the 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 uh, church of John Coltrane. My my roommate at the time, Paul Smitty, the one that played chess with Lyle Mays, his dad was a painter. And he did all Chuck Mangione's early album covers, but we had a four by four, four foot by four foot painting of John Coltrane over the stereo that his dad had painted. This amazing picture of John Coltrane, mm-hmm. and that was the Church of Coltrane. Oh, for you us. had one. You we, had a local chapter. We had our own. Yes, we had our own chapter. We used to talk about that about the Church of the Church of John Coltrane, and that and we said that that was our. Our church of John Coltrane. You know, there was a real church, right? In San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, okay. San Francisco, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Listen, last thing. How's how's your life changed? Because I remember you and I talked... by the way, you're you're a really cool dude. I have I have to say. I mean, that's obvious that, that I I like you a lot. But when you and I first I think I tweeted something about how much I loved your show and then or I mentioned you on my podcast or something and word got back to you. And you you are the only person who's ever done this. You were like Hey, thanks for uh, mentioning me on your show. Whatever. Uh, let's let's uh, Zoom or Skype or something and and talk sometime. And and we set it up. And the whole time I'm thinking like why why does this guy want to do this? Why is he setting aside an hour out of his day to like get on the computer and talk to me? He spends all day looking into a computer and cameras and and like what's what's the ulterior motive here? What's going on? And you just wanted to hang out. As, I mean, yeah. unless I'm misinterpreting. Yeah. People don't do that anymore, you know, especially mitigated by computers. So I thank you for that. It at the end of it, oh. I realized, like, oh, he's just a really cool guy. I just wanted to talk and, you know, see each other. Um, and, uh, yeah, anyway, I appreciate that. But I know you'd be, I knew that you'd be a great hang, Chris. Well, you're, I mean, in addition to being, you know, 
a multi-instrumentalist and, and understanding music so well, you're an amazing teacher. You know, you really, you, you touched on it earlier when, when you said that you try to explain music without draining the, the mystery and the magic out of it. And that's, I mean, your enthusiasm and your sort of like emotional connection to the music is so fucking awesome. I, I, I love, I love so many of your things, your, your videos, the kid Charlemagne, the, um, the sting, was it every breath you take? I mean, you just unpack it so beautifully, but I think my favorite one is, um, suspicion, superstition, Stevie wonder. Mm -hmm. Cause you rock out. It's so great. Like just you're just like you're playing the you're just so um, <laughs> openly vulnerable and like just I fucking love this, you know. And <laughs> I mean, that is the key to being a teacher. Yeah. It's the honesty yeah. and the vulnerability of it. You know, it really um, it illuminates it so beautifully. So thank you. And I'm. So happy for you that you found your niche, you found your audience, you found your gig, and you're just nailing it, dude. It's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate really happy that, Chris, for you. so much. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening to this episode with Rick Beato. Make sure to check him out at What Makes This Song Great on YouTube. I wanted to just jump back in here and um, mention something that uh, – I keep forgetting to to mention when I record these, which is that we've put international orders uh, on hold. So if you're trying to order signed copies of Civilized to Death or Sex at Dawn or T-shirts or stickers or whatever, um, we're going to put that on hold for a little while because I don't want my mom to have to go to the post office and stand in line, which is what she's been doing for the last five or six years or however long I've been doing this. Um, I just don't want her to, to risk the COVID. She's 80 years old and she's in Los Angeles and shit's out of control. So uh, we've just put all that on hold. You can still uh, sign up to support the podcast, obviously, from any country on this beautiful planet. But as far as sending anything physical, we're just going to put that on hold for a little while. Um, so I appreciate your patience and, and I'm sorry, a couple of people written to me like, Hey, how come international shipping isn't available? Uh, we took us a little while to get a banner up on the webpage. So when you go there, if you forget, you'll see, uh, at least for the next month or so. And until things calm down a little bit, we're gonna, we're gonna put that stuff on hold. All right. Thank you for your support of the podcast. However, it manifests. I very much appreciate it. And, uh, and never cease to be amazed by your kindness and generosity. Thank you. Rather than Carsey reminding you that you're going to die one day, I'm going to play you out with a song encouraging you not to fear death. It's a song that Rick and I discussed a little bit in our conversation. Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> 